Great, well, good morning. Please do keep that um, passage open. That would be really helpful as we look at this together. Perhaps turn back to page uh, 61 towards the beginning of that nice long section. Shall we um, pray as we look at this together? Lord God, we do uh, thank you for your word that all of it is uh, God-breathed. And Lord, we pray that this morning you'd speak to us through it, that we might see and know more of who you are. And our trust in you would grow, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's often said, isn't it, that uh, you learn most about a person when the going gets tough, when they're under pressure, up against it. That is when a true person's character comes out. Well, if that's the case, then Exodus chapter 5 is that moment for God. That moment for God. If you were with us a few weeks ago at the start of our series, uh, you'll remember that the book opens, doesn't it, with the oppressive, fearful figure of Pharaoh. Then in chapters 3 and 4, God comes out into the open, and we see in uh, chapter 4, we've just had read, Moses sent by God to see Pharaoh in Egypt with the instruction, release the Israelite people from slavery. And then here in chapter 5, we've got the full character of the anti-God, the anti-God who is Pharaoh, revealed to us. And we see, don't we, that for the people of Israel, stuff is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. God and his people, they are going to be up against it. But as it happens, we'll see and we'll learn about who God truly is as we meet this anti-God, Pharaoh, and his violent oppression of the Israelites. We see what God is like. What, what happens in chapter 5 seems, doesn't it, to come as something of a surprise uh, to Moses and the Israelites. It shouldn't have done, given the warnings, but in verse 22, Moses comes to God almost with a sense of desperation and says, Oh Lord, why have you brought trouble upon this people? But when God had addressed him, told him to go uh, into Egypt, perhaps Moses, fearful though he was, thought, You know what? Pharaoh's going to be a soft touch. He's just going to roll over and say, yeah, sure, you know, take the people, they're yours. Yet when he enters Pharaoh's presence, what does he find? He finds a man who is hard as nails, stubborn and spiritually blind, someone who will not give an inch to Moses or to the God who has sent him. I was wondering, if you were directing a film on the Exodus, who would you cast in the character of Pharaoh, who would you choose to perform that role? I guess they'd have to be kind of dark and angular and a bit menacing-looking, chiselled. But I think probably the biggest thing they've got to have is a really big sneer, haven't they? I think maybe Benedict Cumberbatch would be ideal um, for this sort of role. Whoever you've got to come up with has got to have a sneer because that is the tone of Pharaoh's response when Moses walks in. Just look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Exodus is all about God revealing himself, making himself known. What do we have here? We come up against Pharaoh, who does not know the Lord, 
and he's got no inclination of enlightening himself. Pharaoh is not going to sign up to the Discover course. That is not where he's at. This is a hostile, derisive, almost sarcastic response. You know, who is the Lord? Who do you think you are, Moses, to come into my presence and make this demand? In the name of a foreign god I don't know and, quite frankly, don't care for. That is the kind of tone that he's adopting. This section of Exodus is a bit like, we could say, a heavyweight boxing match. You might have heard this picture before. A boxing match between the two gods of Israel. So in the kind of red corner, we've got the anti-god Pharaoh. In the blue corner, we've got Yahweh, the Lord. And you have, don't you? I don't don't like boxing, maybe you do, but we have in a a boxing match a kind of pre-match press conference where the boxers and the kind of hangers-on, they verbally spar with each other, try and get you know, one over each other. And chapters five and six are a bit like that pre-match press conference. Verbal sparring as these two prize fighters try and establish their credentials uh, over each other, try and get one over each other. Pharaoh is trying to establish, establish himself not just as a king who can oppose God, but as a rival God. A rival God. That is what he stands for in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh thinks of himself as divine. Do you see that in the details of the the narrative? Look at um, chapter 4, verse 23. The Lord says, Let my son, that's Israel, go, so that he may worship me. The Lord wants people to serve and to worship him. So if you turn over to chapter 5, verse 9, Pharaoh has... The same expectation, chapter 5, verse 9. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working. Pay no attention to lies. Pharaoh wants the people to serve and work for him. Just as God's word is delivered with authority by Moses, verse 1 of chapter 5, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. So Pharaoh consciously echoes that delivery, doesn't he, in verse 10 of chapter 5. This is what Pharaoh says. God wants people to serve him. Pharaoh wants people to serve him. God delivers his word with authority. Pharaoh delivers his word with authority. You've got two heavyweights kind of going at each other, head to head. And this is the key, I think. Pharaoh is determined, isn't he, to suppress the truth about God, verse 9. Make the work harder for the men so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Pharaoh wants his truth, as he sees it, to be heard and Yahweh's word to be buried. That is what he's about. And as this rival God tries to establish himself, acts as though the people are his possession, he can do what he wants with them, They cry out to him. Remember, what happens when they cried out to God in chapters 1 and 2? They find a God who hears their cry and promises rescue. What happens when they cry out to Pharaoh here? What do they discover? Someone who is deaf to their plight, who promises opposition, oppression, rather than liberation. Such is the nature of 
of the gods of this world. This is the anti-God Pharaoh, all of his violent oppression towards Yahweh and towards the people of God. If you think about it, that is a pattern, isn't it, that is repeated again and again uh, in the Bible. There are echoes here, aren't there, in the way that Pharaoh acts to the way that Satan acts in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. Satan wants to suppress the truth about God, not wanting God's voice to be heard. He weaves a web of lies in order to enslave God's people, exactly what Pharaoh is doing here. Leaders in the Bible are often the same, aren't they? Goliath stands in opposition to God and the people of Israel in 1 Samuel. He attempts to enslave people of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon is another. King Herod in the New Testament. The Bible presents person after person, leader after leader, who is an anti-God in that way. It is a recurring pattern. Think of the early church suffering at the hands of the Romans, the emperors, the Caesars, who thought themselves as divine, brutally murdering Christians. Happens today, I don't know whether you saw that TV series that Michael Palin had shortly before Christmas from North Korea. Fascinating, North Korea, every morning, megaphones across the city blare out propaganda about the leader, Kim Jong-un, who ludicrously presents himself as divine to his people, suppresses truth, weaves lies and deceptions and oppresses the people of God, persecutes the church. I guess if it's not rulers or kind of kings taking that form, then it is worldviews, isn't it, and ideologies, ways of thinking that do that. Perhaps that is closer to our experience. Our culture is, is increasingly aggressively secular. Christians who put their heads above the parapet are derisively dismissed, often in the same way as those who think the earth is flat. There's a kind of sarcastic media line of questioning often. Who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. I don't want to know the Lord. I don't want to hear about God. We don't know God, certainly not in public. God's kind of airbrushed out. Aggressive allegiances demanded. Just look at the MP Tim Farron to see that working itself out. And in the end, it enslaves. Again and again, leaders, kings, philosophies, ideologies, worldviews, they set themselves up against God. There's no neutrality. And the people of God, they are always on the receiving end. Always getting the antagonism because hostility to God always works out as hostility to God's people. That is something of what God wants us to see in Exodus 5 and repeatedly in the Bible. Why is that? I think in part it's simply just so we are ready for it, so we know about it. Because otherwise it would, wouldn't it, be easy to get, to get derailed uh, as Christians, derailed by the lies that are weaved around us. If we do stand for Jesus Christ, stand publicly at work, you know, on campus, down the pub, at the golf club, at the school gate, then the pattern is that tough times will, will follow. That is the pattern of the Bible. That is the lesson of, of history. 
But most significantly, God wants us to know him. He wants us to know him. To know him for who he truly is. You know, God isn't surprised. Do you notice that? He's not surprised by what is happening here. He predicted it would happen. In verse 19 of chapter 3, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. But I think it's more than that. And I think this is hard to understand at one level. But it is true. There is a sense here of God planning this. Just look at verse 21 of chapter 4. Verse 21 of chapter 4. But I will harden his heart, that's Pharaoh, so that he will not let the people go. God is not surprised, is he, by the opposition his people face. It is his plan. And now everything, if you like, is lined up perfectly so that the people of Egypt, they can see who God truly is. They can know more of him. They can see him for who he wonderfully is and know him better. So if if we've got this anti-God and his violent oppression, then now we've got in full form revealed to us the almighty God and his redeeming work. The opposition we saw in chapter 5 is it, it, it gets worse doesn't it Moses desperately comes to God and asks in verse 22 oh Lord why have you brought trouble upon this people and further on you've not rescued your people at all but then do you see God replies verse 1 of chapter 6 this is his kind of pre-match press conference speech Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Now you will see. Do you kind of sense that kind of weightiness to those words? Now is the moment. Now you will see this is what, in a sense, I've been planning for. This is what everything is lined up for. God has not changed. But in terms of the backdrop for the Israelites, the place they find themselves, everything has changed. If you ever walk into a jeweler's to buy a diamond ring, I don't do this very often. Um, But if you do do that, the salesman will always kind of get out and put on the desk a kind of black velvet cloth, won't they? And then they kind of take the diamond ring from out of the cabinet and they put it on top of the cloth, rest it there for you to look at. Why do they do that? It's because the black velvet cloth absorbs all of the light so that the diamond can sparkle all the more brightly. It feels all the more precious against the backdrop of that black, dark velvet. In a sense, that is what is happening here. So the backdrop of chapter 5 is dark. It is black. It's bleak for the people of God. They're oppressed. But because of that, 
the revelation of God will come all the brighter. The character of God will seem all the more precious, all the more wonderful and beautiful. In chapter 6, God doesn't say much, does he, that he hasn't already said. It's almost repetitious. He repeats his divine name verse to, I am the Lord. He bookends this speech, doesn't he, with, in verse 8, with the same phrase, I am the Lord. It's there in verses 6 and 7 and 8. It's the big point of these early chapters, I am the Lord, Yahweh. Reassuringly, he reminds them he's the God of that covenant, that promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in verse 5, he repeats, he has heard the cry of the people of Israel. He hears he sees. He knows. But, but do you notice that sense of just more to come? Verse 3 of chapter 6. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. What is God saying there? The name Yahweh has appeared before it appears in Genesis. God is saying this. Yes, you have heard my name before. But now you're going to see what this name really means. You just watch me. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And this moment in history, this time of powerful opposition, this is a perfect moment for God to reveal himself. So verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Against this bleak, this desperate backdrop, the people of Israel will see truly who God is as he personally redeems them, as he lifts them, out of slavery, to be his own precious possession, then they will know what it is like to have God as their God. Is it almost as if God is saying, you know, I can, I can say I can love you until I'm blue in the face, but now you're going to experience that love. You're going to experience it personally. As I reach out, as I take hold of you, as I put my name on you, as I call you my own. And from this moment on, the Israelites will always have a moment to look back on in their history to know what God is like, to know what it means for him to be Yahweh. And in a sense, this moment is repeated again and again, as we'll see in Exodus, throughout the Bible, and supremely, of course, fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as God reaches down into the darkness of the world in the person of Jesus. As God says, you know what, I will do, I will do what it takes to liberate humanity from the slavery it's in, to sin and to death and to suffering. I will pay whatever the price is, the life of his own son, Jesus, and I will call you my own. In in the same way the Israelites could look back 
at this moment to know what God is like. If we are Christian, we have that moment. We can look back on to know what God is like. That is what we do in communion. That's what we do this morning as we look back and we remember. Often life is good, isn't it? Life is often sweet. But at times life is and will be tough. We do experience, don't we? Pain and loneliness and grief and opposition and hurt. In the words of that great hymn writer, there are times where we have to trace the rainbow through the rain. And we wonder, don't we? We cry out, where is God? Who is God? You want to know what God is like? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ, that supreme moment of redemption for the Christian. The supreme moment where we find out what God is truly like when God purchases us back at the greatest of costs to call us his own. And if we can look back to that, then we too can look forward to that moment when we will experience the love of God, not just in words or in history or in the spirit of God telling us that, but face to face, when Christ returns and will call us his own, to claim us as his own, to redeem us from the world full of oppression and suffering. That day when we will truly, fully, in every moment, know what God is like. We can look backwards, we can look forwards. But just as we finish, it is only the bleakness of the opposition that brings to light what God is truly like. That is why, isn't it, we can be honest about our sin. We can be honest about who we are, about the fact that like Pharaoh, so often we want to wear the crown. We want to shake our fist at God in certain parts of our life. I was thinking this week, not knowing about the explanation we'd had this morning, but why do we have a time of confession most weeks when we meet together? I think we sometimes misunderstand this, isn't it? It's not as if we confess to kind of come back to God as if we've drifted away or to reset the clock or to have to get clean again. Supremely, we want to admit, don't we, what we are like because we want to be shown our saviour. We want to know what he is like, what Jesus is like, and to encourage each other in that. That is what confession is about. The Lord wants the people of Israel to know him. And that is why he is willing to allow it to get worse before it gets better. But it's not just, is it, as we'll see uh, next week, the people of Israel who God wants to know what he's like, know who he is. It's also the people of Egypt who themselves are going to encounter the almighty God and his judging work. God hates evil. He hates injustice, particularly carried out against his own people. Justice is the heart of God's character. There is coming a day when wrongs will be righted. Just look at the words of verse 4 in chapter 7. 
Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. More of that next week. Shall we pray? Lord God, we do thank you for this, in many ways, difficult um, passage that we've uh, looked at. Lord, we praise you that it is your greatest desire that we should uh, know you, we should be your people, that you would claim us uh, as your own. Lord, we praise you for this picture, this pattern uh, marked for us here of you doing this for the people of Israel. And Lord, we uh, praise you most of all uh, for that great redeeming work, the work of the cross of Jesus Christ in history. May you died and rose again to save your people, to forgive them, to bring them back to yourself, to claim them, claim us as your own. And Lord, we pray that we would be people who would take that deeper into our hearts, uh, would trust more and more in the cross day by day and live for you uh, with all of our being, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.